Go ahead, grab your Bibles if you wanna turn to Matthew chapter six. If you have a device, and if you're new with us, we go through the English Standard Version. So you can click on ESV and that'll get you to what we're, we're reading here in God's word. I always wanted us to be a praying church. So from the very beginning, um, as we launched this series, it's a four-week series on prayer. It's gonna take us to February. I wanted to be a praying church. I don't know if there's another kind of church. I do know that other churches now don't pray very often, at least in a church service. So one of the aims up front was to be a praying church. If you, if you noticed, we, you know, we, we opened up today uh, with prayer. Uh, we, we had a prayer of confession. We had a prayer of thanksgiving. Uh, man, I just prayed for us before we opened God's word. I'm going to pray when I complete uh, my sermon uh, today. In fact, if, if you guys would have been here about 40 minutes before anybody came, you would have saw me and some of our leaders upstairs uh, praying together for you and for the service. So we, we, man, we want to just immerse ourselves uh, in prayer. I, I remember I was at a church, one of the first opportunities I had to be in ministry, and I was, I was leading worship at the time, and I had a choir director that I worked with. That's a whole other story, and you can imagine the challenges of that. I'm not going to get into the cliches of that, but um, I remember we were in a meeting, and we were debriefing one of the first services that we did that he had actually uh, planned, and there, there was a lot of prayer in it, and that's part of how I learned how, how to you know, incorporate much prayer in our, into our liturgies. And uh, so we sat down with this team of pastors, and you know, we did a little debrief, which uh, can either be a really good thing or a really horrendous thing. And uh, one of the guys said, you know, um, reflecting back on the service from Sunday, uh, my only criticism is that I think we prayed too much. And the whole room goes quiet, right? And I'm sitting there and I'm scared. Not, you know, this is a long time ago. And uh, not that I'm not scared now because I'm scared right now. Um, but, uh, but I was really scared back then. And I, and I kind of went, and they went, yes, Ronnie, you know, whatever. And I said, is that possible to, to pray too much? In a service, and the guy, the choir guy next to me starts clapping his hands. I'm like, oh my gosh, now I'm everybody's enemy, and he got the whole staff against me. But it was kind of that kind of thing where it's just, wait a minute, don't we gather to, to pray? Isn't this the thing that we do? Is that we gather to worship God and we worship Him. One of the ways that we worship Him is through coming before Him in prayer. And, and of course, the answer is yes, but when the topic of prayer comes up, everybody's first thought usually and typically is, I know uh, I need to pray, I know I need to pray more. Um, few of you, you know, have this prayer Fitbit with 10,000 prayers logged in it every day at the same time. So there's something about us as Christians that know we need to pray, we feel a burden to pray, we feel guilty about our lack of prayer, but then at the same time, many of us are not really Praying, And for many of us, prayer conjures up some things, right? We have experienced church backgrounds and experiences of prayer. For some of us, it conjures up the experience of just sitting maybe at home where you've tried to pray. And you sit in silence and you're agonizing, right? You're trying to talk to God while your mind wanders in a thousand different directions. For some of you, it recalls deep and agonizing moments where you are pleading before God, you're communicating your sorrows and your misunderstandings about what the heck is going on in life. For some of you, it conjures up, man, some, for some of you, it just conjures up these pre-dinner rituals that mom and dad forced upon you while you sat starving, you know, in your chair and you're just trying to get to the food, right? Some of us think that prayer is just something that happens on Sunday when the pastor prays. So for some of you guys, you leave here and you go, man, we prayed six times. In fact, Ronnie just affirmed that we did that. I never even knew that was the number. I feel really better about that. I'm going to check that off the list. Um, 
most of us, unfortunately, the reality is that we don't pray. We just know that we should pray. So here's a question for us as we begin. If someone asked you why pray, would you even know how to answer that? If someone just came and said, hey, I saw you praying before you, before you dove into that turkey sandwich, what is it that you're doing and how do I do that? So we know we should pray, but we're not really sure why. And for many of us, we're not really sure how. So at best, our prayers can come off in a lot of ways. And what they typically do is these grown-up Christmas lists, right? Where we just bow our heads, we realize what we need, we realize what we want, and we just start going down sort of this mental checklist of things that we're asking God for, which, by the way, isn't necessarily bad in and of itself because God says, hey, lay your supplications and your requests before me, but it can't be merely all that prayer is. We're, we're missing it. We're missing it if that's all prayer has become for us. So what we're going to see today is that when Jesus talks about prayer, he doesn't actually focus, and this is where we get into trouble, he doesn't actually focus on the act of praying, but on the object of our prayers, which of course is God as Father. Now we know this, that for a relationship to flourish, the object has to be the person, right? It's not just the relationship in and of itself. It's not just this imaginary thing that we define as relationship, but it actually has to be on the person, not the work even that's required to make a relationship flourish, right? So some of you with best friends or spouses, and you don't go into a relationship thinking, man, I really want to get to know this person, but gosh, I'm hoping that can happen with absolutely zero communication. I mean, you know, maybe some of you do, but you, but you really know that that's not going to be much of a relationship if that's the ground that you that you begin on. And I mean, if that was the case, I mean, the relationship would just end up being not only impersonal, but probably, you know, improbable at the same time. And that's a lot like prayer. If it lacks God as its focus, it becomes impersonal and then largely improbable. So, uh, in fact, in his book, uh, The Praying Life, I think we might have some copies out there in the bookstore, Paul Miller makes this, really this profound statement that deals with the problem of prayer. This is what he says. He says, many people struggle to learn how to pray because they focus on praying, not God, right? So, so what he's saying is, is that we can't just pray as a means to an end, right? There I prayed, I opened my mouth, I said, God, bless me. God, uh, bless this food to my body. God, please help me through this particular scenario that I find myself in. But it actually, ha- it actually has to be focused on the person of God himself. Tim Keller, when asked the question, what is prayer? This is what he says. He says, prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. Wow. He said, it is also the main way we experience deep change. He says, it's the reordering of our loves. He says, prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things he has for us. And he goes on to say, indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way that we know God. It is the way that we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. That's pretty profound what uh, Tim just told us in this quote here. So as an entry point into this four-week series, we're going to define prayer as this, just to keep it very simple, and this is how we're going to unpack it. We're going to define it as having God's ear and hearing God's heart. And there's many implications to those two things, having God's ear and hearing God's heart. And that's what the Lord's Prayer kind of unpacks 
for us. And today what we're going to see is a model, the beginning of a model of how to pray from Jesus that begins with acknowledging God as our father and then receiving his fatherliness with childlike dependency. So knowing God as our father and then as we pray, we're receiving that fatherliness and we're doing it with a childlike dependency knowing that everything we need and everything we desire, he has in his hands. Does that make sense? Well, let me just pick up here. Matthew chapter six, I'm gonna pick up in verse five. Now, Jesus starts a little negative and he's starting with telling us that, that true prayer is not merely an outward display of spiritual showmanship to gain the praise of others or to manipulate God, right? So in other words, like just because you open your mouth to pray doesn't mean God's up there going, good, you covered it, we're good this week, don't worry, no wrath, I'm not gonna allow you to have a car accident, I'm not gonna allow these things to befall you, we're good. That's not really what he's talking about. So prayer doesn't just earn us brownie points with God, it doesn't keep us off of God's naughty list uh, at all. In fact, Jesus points out the ludicrousness of this by saying God already knows what we need before we even pray it. Right? So when we come before God, we're not giving God new information. When we lay our needs before him, it's not that he doesn't know. When we come before him and we're grieving and we're sorrowful, he knows. He's there. When we are battling something that we are praying to get deliverance from, he's like, I'm with you. I know. Now, does that mean he doesn't want us to approach him? Of course not. And we'll get more into that in a minute. But we're not giving God any new information. But really what Jesus is going to do here is he's going to provide a model for us in how we are to pray that puts the emphasis on the one we're praying to, okay? So I'm going to pick right up here, and this is what he says in verse 5 when he says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. So he's giving us a warning here. And then he says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret. He's not saying that's the only way we pray. He's giving us sort of a model and example of this thing about prayer that's not supposed to be merely outward. And then he says, and your father who sees in secret, he will reward you. And then verse seven, he says, and when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. So you realize that you can come before God. Jesus is saying it right now. He's giving you permission to not be the most eloquent prayer in the room, right? He's giving you permission to just lay it out. If you don't believe that, just start reading the Psalms. You know, we read a psalm like, for every psalm we read from David, that's like Psalm 23, and it just sounds like this beautiful, epic, like poetic song that he wrote. There's these other psalms when he ain't like that at all. And he is just laying it out, and he is just bearing his soul. And he's saying, God, here's the thing. If you are who you say you are, why is this happening? He says those things to God. So the psalms teach us, they tell us what kind of posture we're supposed to have before the Lord, what kind of childlike dependency we're supposed to have on God. Because you know what? When your kids come to you and they ask you for something, are they ever slick? I mean, maybe around Christmas time, they try to slick it up a little bit, right? But you're onto it, man. You're onto it. And in fact, you don't like it. 
right? You don't like any of that. Like last December when you got these kids that are starting to slick out on you and they're like putting like little like, you know, copies of like the presents they want. They're like hanging them on all these like real strategic places. You're just like, what is this all about? Well, you don't think I know you? You don't think you can come to me? You don't think you can be honest with me about what it is that you want? I'm a father who wants to give you good things. I'm a mother who wants to bless you. So this is what Jesus is saying. You're not gonna be heard for your many words. And he says in verse eight, don't be like them. Don't be like that. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Then he says, well, pray like this. Pray like this in verse nine. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So we're just gonna really focus on verse nine today. And what's interesting is that, again, Jesus is not giving us a prayer to mimic, but to model. He doesn't say, pray this. And it's okay to pray that. But he doesn't say pray this, he says pray like this. It's like some of you guys who get instructional you know, DVDs, or if anybody gets DVDs anymore, you get owner's manuals. Um, but here's the thing, when you get an owner's manual, what's happening is you're receiving information to give you control over a particular object that you have bought or that you have created. A prayer is the, the other side of that, it's the opposite of that. Prayer is the act of giving control over to God, who is the object of our faith and who controls all things. So the first thing Jesus tells his disciples to remember when they pray is that number one, God is what? He's a father. God is a father. And you know what? With the knowledge of God being a father, you know what that does as we start contemplating our prayer lives? It should change how we approach God, right? Look at the first place Jesus directs his disciples to focus on. He makes praying a personal discourse from the very first word with God as father, right? This is like intimate language. God is not a, a buddy, right? God is not an acquaintance. God is not a, a Facebook friend or a, a Twitter follower. That's not how Jesus is laying it out. He is our father. And the image here is of a child approaching a parent in complete and total dependence, confident that they will be heard, confident that they will be loved, listened to, nurtured, and known. And again, this is a, a new and an interesting experience for literally all of us, right? Because of our earthly fathers, right? Who never were and were never going to be perfect fathers for us. And in fact, some of them were very imperfect. In fact, some of them were very impersonal, distant and absent, unloving. Some of you guys have even suffered abuse from your earthly fathers. Maybe this has been your experience, which is interesting then that Jesus, the first place he would bring us to as a model for how to pray is redefining in our minds who it is we're praying to. He didn't just say pray to our God. He said pray to our father in heaven. And what we see here that Jesus is doing is he's providing access for us. He's providing a peculiar access to us that was given to us by him in which we can approach a father that is finally unfailing, 
in our lives. John 1.12 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then in Galatians 3, Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So to be able to call God Father, it gives us a clue into what our identity is to be able to even do that, right? It's because we're in Christ that we have access to come freely to God as Father because that's the relationship that Christ has with him. But again, it's not access to someone who has a distant relationship with us, right? He's not a distant relative you only see on the holidays, like what you just experienced over the last couple of weeks. It's not a relationship where you do all the work because this is something that just goes one way, right? You guys have all experienced relationships like that. A relationship to God as Father, it comes from our relationship to God as Son, which has given us access. John 16, the Apostle John says, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me Jesus says, and have believed that I came from God. There's that access point right there. Belief in the Son of God, Jesus having come from God. So knowing Christ means we know our approach to God will be received with acceptance and approval. And you know who paid for that privilege? It was Jesus Christ. He paid for that privilege and that right and that inheritance on the cross. You guys remember the story of the prodigal son. When the son takes the father's inheritance, he goes out, he squanders it. The father lets him go out and squander it. And at some point, the son comes back. Before that dude even makes it back to the house, what do we see the father doing? Running to greet the son. He had access. He was given access he, he was afraid and he really tried to make a deal with his father saying, hey, why, why don't I just treat you as boss? Why don't I just treat you the way the servants have to treat you, which is, hey, you just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And the father said, but, but that's impossible because you're my son. It's impossible for that relationship to work like that because you're my son. So that is what Jesus is trying to point out here is that God is a father. And when you remember that, it's gonna change how you approach God. You're gonna remember it's like this parent relationship without any of the unfailings, any of the imperfections that you or people that you've known have experienced that make it hard to approach God as a father. So that's the first thing. Jesus tells his disciples to remember that when they pray, it's that God is father. Secondly, God is a father who is in heaven. So he's a father who is in heaven, which again, what this does is it calls out our misconceptions about who we think God is to us. Our God is a father who is in heaven. We speak to a God who is in the place that we will be going someday, right? He is able to meet our needs in a way that no earthly father can. Psalm 103, 19 reminds us, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So because God is a father, not only a father, but in heaven, it means he's transcendent. It means he's above. It means he's beyond the limitations of this world. But again, that doesn't mean he's, he's distant. He's not distant because Jesus covered that by calling him father first. So he's father first, but he's also in heaven. So when we say our father, it speaks to the nearness of God to us on earth. But when we say our father in heaven, like Jesus is instructing us, it reminds us of our future home with God in heaven. 
Only a father God who knows all and needs nothing can perfectly know and supply our needs. An earthly father cannot. And that's been damaging too many of us. Okay, and I'm gonna mention that a lot because I know a lot of us are coming from past or we're immersed in futures where man, the only way we understand how a father treats a person and loves a person is from our earthly fathers. And what Jesus is trying to say is, hey, hold on. We're talking about something completely different here that is intimately trustworthy and reliable, right? So we have a father who is God, who is in heaven, who has divine sovereignty, who has limitless ability, who has unsearchable knowledge, who knows what we need before we ask. You know, it's interesting because I think what happens a lot when we're praying is that our minds are wandering is that we forget who we're praying to. Remember who you're praying to, right? God is not some dark horse, right? He's not the risky pick for your life. He's not someone you have to cycle through a long list to get to. Like when you make those calls, you know, and they say, uh, you know, we're, we're experiencing, you know, difficulties and long waits right now. And, you know, if, if, you know, push this number, if you want to call back, push this number, if you want this kind of music, push this number, if you don't want to wait longer than five minutes. And before you know it, you don't remember what you're calling for. Like, I, like, I don't remember what I was calling for after running through that list. And we tend to think of God like that. We tend to think that I'm really not going to get to him. I'm really not going to receive his help. I'm really not going to receive his love. But God resides in a place of eternity that we're told also exists in our hearts. And so if you have Christ today, there is an eternity now that is being unpacked and unfolded in your hearts because it's your future destination. And you can have the confidence knowing that you not only have a God, but he's a God who is a father and he's a father who is in a, who is in a heaven that you will someday reside in with him. And because he's in heaven, it means that he has an ability that is not going to fail you like the other people and the other fathers in your life. So God is a father, God is a father who's in heaven. And thirdly and finally, God is a father whose name is hallowed, whose name is hallowed, it says, which is what confronts our awe of God. So this is a God that is on one hand our father, on another hand in heaven, but on another holy and deserving of our awe and deserving of our reverence. So this is what we need to understand about God so that we don't make God flippant, right? So we don't add a, a particular kind of flippancy to the character of God and who God is. God isn't a peer, he's in a coworker. He's not a drinking buddy, he's not a fellow Buckeyes fan. I know some of you guys would disagree with that, right? There is a reverence due him above all others. And when we approach God, it's the same God that those dudes in the Old Testament approached God with and they started trembling and their knees started knocking. You remember Isaiah, he thought he was gonna be ruined when he was confronted with even just a vision of God. Remember C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia when he talks about Aslan, who is a model of God, he says, he says, Aslan is not a tame lion. And we gotta remember who we're dealing with here when we talk about a father God in heaven. He's also a God whose name is hallowed, right? He's also somebody that referred to himself as 
I am to Moses in Exodus 3 verse 14. In Revelation 21, 16, he tells John, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Nobody else gets to say that. Nobody in the Marvel universe like gets to say that right now, right? I am the beginning and the end. Everyone has their beginning. Everything has their beginning and their end in God. He is the, as Isaiah says, high and lofty one whose name is holy. That's why on Sunday we want our worship to be so immersed in what we call God-glorifying exaltation. Because here's why. We don't naturally hold God high. We naturally want to bring him down to our level. Now, this doesn't make God less approachable. It simply gives weight and shape to God as we approach him as heavenly, hallowed father, right? Since Jesus died and the veil between us and God has been torn, we now have access to him, but we always must remember who it is that we're approaching. The more, in fact, the more we become in awe of God's hollowedness, the more we will be overcome and overwhelmed by his fatherliness. And those two things go hand in hand. And prayer is how we become humbled by God, to God, for God in his hollowedness. Now, man, I used, for years, we lived close to the Grand Canyon. And um, this is my fault. Um, Melissa used to ask me constantly, hey, why don't we go visit the Grand Canyon next weekend? And I'd be like, oh, I'm a tad, you know, I don't hear well in my right ear. Why don't we think about something else? And so all these years, many, many years, I don't want to give away my age, even though I did that two weeks ago. Maybe you're new and I don't want you to know how old I am. But for many, many years, we, we lived close to the Grand Canyon, never went. Never went to the Grand Canyon. Can you imagine? Some of you guys are like, man, I paid a lot of money. You know, I did this crazy vacation. I stayed in all these hotels. I rented like this Airstream and went across the country. Like I paid like billions of dollars to go see the Grand Canyon. You live like a tank of gas away from it and you never saw it. No, I never, I never saw it. I never, I never got to behold the wonder of the Grand Canyon. And because of that, because of that, I don't have the experience. I don't have like this new insight. I don't have this vision that I get to take with me about something that is so beyond me. Something that actually puts me in my right place. Something that actually makes me feel small. Because you know why? I should feel small. Because when I step into the Grand Canyon, again, all theoretical, um, I, I, you know, I'm not the Grand Canyon. And this is something that is engulfing. That's why it's important for us to understand God for who he is. It's important for us to understand that God's name is hallowed. Okay, so as we close, I wanna talk about some barriers as we approach God as our Father in heaven whose name is hallowed. The first barrier that we carry with ourselves is we carry the barrier of fear, guilt, and shame. Our fallenness makes us ashamed to face God when we know we need him. So if you're somebody who has put their trust in Christ for your salvation, it's because you know that you needed God. But in our fallenness, we still have this measure of shame that makes it hard for us to go before the Lord. And again, this breakdown in communication 
which is what we can, one of, the, one of the, the definitions we can give to prayer is communication, discourse between us and God. This breakdown in communication has started with Adam and Eve, right? God was walking in the cool of the day in the garden. He was seeking Adam and Eve. Where are you guys? So where were they? Well, they were hiding. Why? Well, because they sinned. And the moment they sinned, they were what? They were fearful. They were fearful to face God. Isn't that interesting? Like a minute later, there was no fear. That kind of fear. There was all in reverence, but there wasn't this fear of God as a punisher. So the moment they sinned, they were fearful to face God. And their sin exposed their nakedness. And what happened in that moment? Well, they felt shame. And then they couldn't face the holiness of God anymore because of their guilt. So because of this, their opinion of God became distorted. And so that's us. Because all of us carry a measure of fear, guilt, and shame. And so for us, we need to bring that before the Lord. We need to recognize ourselves as we read the story of Adam and Eve. We need to recognize that we bring a level of fear thinking, well, I I know it says you're my father, but that scares me. I know it says you're in heaven, and because you can see everything, I have a measure of shame. And because you're so holy, there's a level of guilt that I'm battling because of my sin. And so our encouragement this morning is to give that fear, guilt, and shame to the Lord. Open up to him. Explain to him what those barriers are. Don't just put your finger in the water and stir, but go deep. God, this is why it's so hard for me to pray to you because I'm battling a measure of fear and a measure of guilt here and a measure of shame because of my past. And what we know is that God sent Jesus to remove that because the cross removes fear because the cross banishes guilt, because the cross takes your shame, puts it on Jesus so that you can approach God as a father who is in heaven, whose name is hallowed. So if fear, guilt, and shame is a barrier that you've been facing that has prevented you from coming to God, misdefining who God is as your father, bring that to God as your father, knowing that since he is a good father, he's going to take it and he's gonna relieve you of some of the burdens that those things have placed on you now for years. You can depend on that. The second thing and the final thing, some of the barriers that we carry into our prayer life is uh, earthly fathers. Earthly fathers, we struggle with fatherliness because every father, every one of us has ever had has been broken. So all you dudes that just own it, in terms of fatherhood, still broken. We all have broken fathers. Some of you have had a father that just maybe withheld affection. And this dude never gave me any affection. And so now when you look at God as father, you think this is somebody who doesn't really care. This is someone who couldn't possibly love me because I never felt that affection and that love from my earthly father. For some of you, you had a dad that just worked. Dude just worked. Worked hard. Is hard work good? It is. But too much work is, is ungodly and not good. And some of you guys had fathers that just worked too hard. So now when you approach God as a father, your first opinion of him is that he must be too busy. He just must be too busy. Why? Well, because my dad, my old man, 
I mean, I know he was doing it for the family, but he just never had a lot of time for us. Some of you have had abusive fathers. Fathers that were unkind, fathers that shaped your very heart and your very soul. And I can look at you right now and I can say, I'm sorry for that. That you had a man that was so unkind that damaged you to that deep of a degree. And by the way, uh, as, as leadership in this church, we, we wanna walk through some of those things with you if that is you. We want you to feel the, the, uh, the, the freedom and the vulnerability to approach us. We can sit down and we can talk through some of these things. But because maybe you suffered abuse from an abusive father, what happens is as you approach God as your father, you just think he's angry. You just think he must be angry because I'm a sinner. You think he must be angry because I keep screwing up. That's hard to get past for us. Some of you guys had quiet dads. You had a quiet father. Guy never said anything. You never knew what he was thinking. You didn't know if he was happy. You didn't know if he was sad. You didn't know if he was mad. And so when you approach God as a father, you just think he's kind of always disapproving of everything that you do. Some of you may have had a father that really never disciplined you. He just kind of let you do whatever you want, which sounds like a dream when you're a kid. But a little bit later in life, you look back and you go, you know, I think what it kind of showed me was that he was just kind of oblivious. I don't really know if he was that, that checked into my life. Some of you guys had a dad that was a taskmaster. This dude just wanted you to get it done. Hey, make sure when I come home, this is done, that is done. Make sure the lawn's mowed. Make sure the house is clean. Make sure you've fixed this. You've accomplished that. And so when you come to God as father, you just think, man, he wants you to shut up and get it done. If you just shut up and get it done, God's gonna be happy. And in those moments you don't, you just need to kind of go hide away because you're fearful. You're fearful that he's unhappy with you, right? I mean, am I wrong in those things? That's rhetorical. But here's what we know about God. Here's what you need to remember about God. This is why this message is good news for us today. You need to remember that God is a father who saved you from ruin. He did it by sending his son Jesus, even though you sinned against him. That's the wonder of it all. Prayer doesn't earn us access to God. Jesus earned that for us so that we can pray to God. This is the God who listens to you. This is the God who loves you. This is the God who understands that fear, guilt, and shame. This is the one who walks beside you in your fear, guilt, and shame, who upholds you, who comforts you, who endures with you through suffering. Do we not want to come to him like kids and say, hey, pops, I have some things I want to share with you. Because when we look down here at Matthew chapter six, who was Jesus instructing to pray? Well, he was instructing people like us who make things up about who God really is, right? People who think, does God really listen to me? People who feel unworthy, people who are stained by sin, who are crushed by guilt, who are not doing what they know is right. People not praying as they should. Jesus isn't telling us to pray because there's a chance God won't hear us. In reality, the fact that Jesus came to earth to tell us how to pray is how we know God hears and fills our greatest need. 
Jesus is the testimony that God wants to interact as a father who's in heaven, whose name is hallowed. So Jesus is saying this, be with God. Be with God, your father who is my father. Bring him everything. Bring him your heartbroken pleas. Bring him your joyful sharing. Bring him your annoying complaints. Bring him your happy observation. Bring him those devastating cries. Bring him your thankful remembrances. Bring him the alarming discoveries that he surfaces in your heart. Bring him those aching desires. Bring him those fearful thoughts. He wants them. You have his ear. You have his ear. And besides all that, prayer is not only just a personal thing like we've been talking about it. Because we have a God who is our father, we want him to become a father to others. So when we know a father that is this kind and this good and this listening and this loving, it causes us to want to say, hey, you want to, you want to meet my dad? So now prayer just all of a sudden, man, it just bursts open. It's not just this personal thing, but as something that we want to invite others into. The other thing we do, the other thing that, that prayer reminds us of is that we, we pray together, right? As a church, we help one another pray like this so that we're drawn back to the object of our faith and affection. Here's how I'm gonna end. Praying to God as Father, it's understanding. Listen, just listen to this. It's understanding that the most significant thing about your life is that you are not fatherless. You have a father who knows you because he made you. You have a father who hears you because he loves you. You have a father who loves you because he sent his son to die so that he might be your father. Whatever kind of father you did or didn't have, you now have one that receives you in all your fear and all your guilt and all your shame and he knows what to do with it. You know what he does with it? He covers it. He covers it through Christ. And if you don't know God as father, you can know him by receiving that covering, that forgiveness that was offered by his son when he was crushed for your sin. Then you can call God Father. Then you can come to him with confidence and assurance and hope that he will hear you. He will help you because he is unfailing. How do we know that's true? Because the kind of father that God was to Christ, he is to us if we are in Christ. This means, among many other things, that we have his ear when we are pleading to him, when we are praising to him, when we are proclaiming him, when we are complaining to him, when we are at our lowest moment and there doesn't seem to be any escape from the grief and from the sorrow and from the end of our straining and our pain, it means we have a God who is a father, who loves us, who cares for us, who is gentle with you in your fear and your guilt and your shame. And that's what we call hope. That's what we call the good news. Let's pray.